I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and welcome to Paranormal Almanac. That's right, I am your host, Kurt Sandvig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, we'll be talking about a few different things. I know it's been a couple of days, I don't want anyone to think that I've stopped doing this, because A, I love doing it, and B, I love hearing from you guys on Facebook about what episodes you want me to do, or what episodes you liked or didn't like. I don't mind any of the criticism you guys have been giving me so far. But on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's talk about hauntings from around the world. Like I said... Thank you to all of my listeners, but especially I want to say thank you to my international listeners from around the very round, not at all, Flat Earth. And by the way, if you guys are ever expecting me to do a Flat Earther episode, like I've said in previous episodes, it's crap, and let me prove it to you right now. That's right, I am your host, Kurt Sandvig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, we'll be talking about Flat Earth. Is the Earth flat? Nope. And that'd be the end of the episode. But anyhow, thank you for listening, and because of that, I wanted to do something for the international listeners. I didn't want to keep giving you guys local, well, local to me anyway, stories. Even though I've got a bunch coming up that are kind of local, I wanted to make sure that this week I told some stories literally from around the world. So on this edition, we're going to be talking about hauntings from around the world. And yes, I realize a couple are technically from North America, but still I should get credit for trying. And the other cool thing about tonight's edition is that these hauntings span from the early 1600s all the way through to 2005. So the first one up is Bloody Mackenzie. Lord Advocate Sir George Mackenzie, known to his victims as Bloody Mackenzie, and now it says Bluidy, B-L-U-I-D-Y, I'm just going to call him Bloody, and you guys can correct it yourselves if you know better, because I don't. But anyhow, Bloody was a vicious, vicious war criminal, and he was also a torturer in the service of King Charles II. What Bloody did was he would imprison and torment thousands of dissident Presbyterians in Scotland during the king's attempt to unify the country under one state religion. Now, he carried out his grisly work at Greyfriars Kirkyard, which is a small cemetery of the Greyfriars Kirk Parish, and that's owned by the Church of Scotland. Now, hundreds of his victims were buried there, and... Kind of coincidentally, or ironically, if you will, if you don't listen to Alanis Morissette's version of irony, ironically, Bloody himself was buried there when he died in 1691. Now, everything was all peaceful. He was dead. What more could he do, right? Well, one night in 1998, a homeless man seeking shelter decided he would try to sleep in Mackenzie's mausoleum. Unfortunately, and unbeknownst to this homeless man, though, he fell through a hole in the floor of Mackenzie's tomb into a forgotten chamber that housed the remains of hundreds of plague victims. He scrambled his way out of there, 
and not surprisingly, he ran screaming into the night, probably terrified that he just released the plague into the modern world. Now, luckily, the plague didn't happen, but it seems like he disturbed Bloody enough that the next day, a woman looking through the iron gates of the cemetery was blasted back off her steps by a cold force, for it appears that Bloody woke up and was none too happy that people were messing with his mausoleum. Shortly thereafter, another woman was found unconscious near the exact same tomb with bruising on her neck like someone had tried to strangle her. When she awoke and they talked to her, she said that there was nobody there and she had no memory of ever seeing anybody. Now, sure, one or two instances could be just an odd coincidence, but there have been over 500 reports of ghostly attacks right near Mackenzie's tomb. And these include burns, skin gouges, especially around the neck, some around the abdomen, unexplained bruises all over people's bodies, this is kind of terrifying, broken fingers, punches, kicks, having their hair pulled, strange smells and strange sounds, and a bunch of knocking on the walls and the floors around that mausoleum. Many of these have been witnessed by multiple witnesses. So these aren't the random crackpot. These are multiple witnesses experiencing this, some of which who knew nothing about Bloody McKenzie and just happened to be walking through the cemetery. And as if that wasn't bad enough, some of the witnesses even claimed that the ghost had followed them back home or to the hotel, and they continued to be tormented by the ghost there. There was one person who even tried to exercise the cemetery, and he was found dead a few days later. So I'm going to say that didn't really work out too well for him. Now, to this day, the cemetery is still considered to be haunted, and it's still considered to be haunted by Bloody McKenzie himself. So if you go to the cemetery, be warned, you might come home with more than you bargained for. Now, next up, we have one of the best-known poltergeist stories ever. Her name was Maria Jose Ferreira. And she was just 11 years old when she and her family had a series of paranormal, or to be more specific, poltergeist attacks. Now, this all happened in Jabaticabal, Brazil, in 1965. The poltergeist managed to manifest bricks and stones out of nowhere and threw them at Maria or just dropped them in the house from the ceiling. People would be sitting there, and out of nowhere, bricks or stones would fall directly in front of them. Now, since a similar pile of bricks were, was just outside in the backyard, like just outside the house in the backyard, the family figured that it was someone must be playing a trick on them. But the falling bricks did not cease for several days, and the pile out back didn't get any smaller. So they couldn't explain where these bricks were coming from or how they managed to keep happening over and over and over. Now, the family sought the help of their local priest, who did try to perform an exorcism. Unfortunately, though, the only thing the exorcism did was make the poltergeist even more angry. From that point on, it targeted Maria, who again was just 11 years old at the time, with various physical attacks, including scratches, slaps, bites, including bite marks that they could see on her body appear as if from nowhere, and the poltergeist left her constantly bruised. The family then sought the help of a spiritist, a neighbor named Joao Volpe, who just happened to be a dentist, and they didn't really explain in any of the pages I could find why they went to him and how they knew he was a spiritist. Now, Volpe was determined 
that Maria herself was a natural medium and unwittingly and unknowingly enabled the poltergeist. In fact, she had a host of invisible playmates. Volpe offered to take her to his own home in an attempt to kind of solve this problem. He wanted to see if she, if he got her away from the house to see if the entity was attached to the house or if it would follow Maria. For the next several days, everything appeared to be quiet and they thought maybe it had passed or that it was connected to the house. But then stones began to appear and fly about whenever Maria was present. Out of nowhere, the activity started up again. Now, Volpe counted 312 stones, one of them weighing over 8 pounds. Now, remember, these stones were flying about, so there was an 8-pound stone flying about. Next up, eggs would appear and be thrown about and also disappear. Maria discovered that her invisible playmates would bring her things, especially if she asked for them. So she started to ask for candy and small objects, and these objects and the candy would materialize at her feet in front of witnesses. Once while walking down the street with Volpe and a friend, she said she would like a little brooch for herself, and it appeared instantly at her feet. Now, Maria seemed to be okay with them when they were doing stuff for her, obviously giving her candy and brooches and everything else. But again, the activity would increase not only in intensity, but in violence. Inside Volpe's house, all the glass and his crockery items were thrown about and smashed over the next three weeks. Maria felt slapped, bruised, and again, bitten by these invisible forces. Objects were thrown on her, and I'm not talking just small objects. I'm talking chairs, a large sofa, and a glass cylinder. Pictures and a mirror were torn off the wall and thrown all over the house. And scarily, the attacks didn't stop when she slept. They continued through her sleep. Cups and glasses appeared over her mouth as though something was attempting to suffocate her. And depending on what site you get your information from, or should I say, depending on what site I got my information from, there may have been sexual attacks by the poltergeist on Maria. But again, it varies depending on where I got my information. So take that one with a grain of salt, and hopefully that one wasn't true. Forty days after the attack started, the first brick fell, should we say, Maria was attacked with needles which would appear deeply embedded in the flesh of her left heel. If her heel was bandaged, the bandages would be torn off. Then, as if it was even possible, it got worse. On March 14, 1966, Maria's clothing began to smolder with fire while she was eating her lunch at school in front of many witnesses, and she caught on fire. A visit to another spirit medium revealed a possible source for the poltergeist. Apparently, Maria had been an evil witch in a previous life and was now being tormented by the spirits of people her previous incarnation had sent to their deaths with black magic. This medium pleaded with the poltergeist, please leave Maria alone, but sadly it didn't work. Maria returned home and continued to be tormented until, and here's a trigger warning coming up, until, at age 13, she took her own life with pesticides. After her death, the manifestations stopped. So it does seem like this poltergeist was directly connected to Maria. And I'll have theories about these at the end of all of the stories, but I just wanted to put that out here right now. The next one up is creepy for an entirely different reason. It's called the South Shields Poltergeist, and... As you may know from listening to the Haunted Toys R Us story, 
I think the idea of ghosts or entities using toys to scare or startle people is just scary as hell to me. Toys have been terrifying to me since, well, probably before the movie Poltergeist, but definitely after I saw that damn clown in the movie Poltergeist. And in this case, it seems like the entity or Poltergeist or whatever it is seems to have a specific fetish for toys, and specifically the toys belonging to a three-year-old boy, which the spirit used to terrorize not the boy, but the boy's parents. In December 2005, Mark and Marianne, and those are in quotes, which leads me to believe every version of the story I could find that these aren't their real names, and I can't blame them at all. So we'll continue with Mark and Marianne. Now, they're a couple living with their young son, Robert, in South Shields, England. And they began to notice strange things happening all over their house. Furniture would move by itself, doors would open and close on their own, chairs would be found stacked in bizarre configurations. So let me pause here. Again, what's with the stacking? Almost every time I do a ghost story, there's at least one of them that has a story about things being stacked. Shoes, chairs, furniture, toys. What's with the stacking? Honestly, I'm not just saying this. I'm asking you guys, what do you think is the point of the stacking? Why is it just a ghost way of trying to get our attention or what? I don't understand it, so I'm going to need your thoughts about that one. But anyhow, back to the story. Uh, let's see. Chairs would be found stacked in bizarre configurations. They heard noises. They heard voices. And then things got worse. One evening, while Mark and Marianne were in bed, Marianne got hit in the back of the head with one of her son's toys right in front of Mark. When they checked the entire room, no one else was in it. Robert was not in the room. And just when they thought it went quiet again, the couple had to fight off an invisible entity that tried to steal their blanket. So let me pause again. Um, if you think a blanket is going to keep you safe from the boogeyman, apparently it won't. So good luck sleeping tonight. Anyhow, the encounter ended when Mark felt a searing pain on his back and 13 red scratches, pretty deep scratches apparently, appeared on his skin. And that's when the poltergeist really went after the toys. It left a rocking horse hanging from a ceiling fan. Mark and Marianne found a stuffed rabbit sitting in a toy chair at the top of their stairs. Creepy. And if that wasn't creepy enough, there was a box cutter in the rabbit's lap. Nope. Move right away. Leave your kid behind. Sucks to be him. You got evil toys with box cutters. Obviously, I would not be good in this kind of a situation. But back to the story. They seemed to love their kid and did not do that. Uh, evil and angry messages began to appear on their son's doodle board and even on their cell phones, always from untraceable numbers. And these messages were things like, go die or you're dead. So nothing you'd really want to see on either your son's doodle board or on your cell phone for that matter. Now, sometimes Robert would go missing for long periods of time, only to be discovered hiding in strange parts of the house, like closets and cupboards. And the story doesn't go any deeper than that. Did they ask Robert why he was hiding, who he was hiding from? Did someone put him in there? They didn't ask any of those questions, apparently. Paranormal investigators were called in, and they witnessed several incidents themselves, even said to have seen the entity manifest. And they described it as a midnight black three-dimensional silhouette that, quote, radiated sheer evil, 
which to me is frankly a horrible description. How about some details? Did it have eyes, no eyes, horns, fangs, red eyes? Was it evil? Did it laugh? Like, did it look like a guy? What did it look like? If the best description you can do is radiated sheer evil, yeah, that's scary and that sucks, but it's not a great description. So what do you guys think happened next? Did the paranormal investigators get killed? Actually, no. Just as abruptly as it began, the hauntings stopped completely. Nothing further has ever been heard from Mark, Marianne, Robert, or the entire house where they lived. It just seemed to have stopped all on its own. So apparently radiating sheer evil to scare a few paranormal investigators was all the energy it had left, and poof, it's gone. Which, again, I think is a good thing. I don't need this toy-loving poltergeist anywhere near me, so I'm glad he went away. All right, let's move from England over to Canada, and this one is called The Great Amherst Mystery. And it's the case of Esther Cox and her group of abusive ghosts. It's one of the most oddest yet famous ghost stories in Canada. Esther lived in Amherst, Nova Scotia, beginning in 1878. Everything was fine until, sadly, Esther was sexually assaulted by a male friend, and that's when the paranormal activity started. Now, there was everything on the checklist for paranormal activity. There was knocking and banging and voices. Esther's body began to swell, though, and as she alternated between high fevers and periods of very low body temperature, objects in the house began to fly all around, and this was again reportedly witnessed by a ton of people in 1878. The doctor who was called in to help Esther witnessed her bedclothes being moved, heard scratching noises from an undetermined source, and saw the words, Esther Cox, you are mine to kill, appear on the wall at the head of her bed. So basically, everything evil that could happen was happening to Esther. Now, Esther tried moving to other houses, but that proved unsuccessful. The activity followed her no matter where she went. It seemed to be connected to Esther herself. Things kept getting progressively worse until a fire started out of nowhere and burnt down Esther's host's farmhouse. And this resulted in her serving jail time for arson. Now, it seems like Esther just couldn't catch a break. Here's this poor girl who got sexually assaulted by a male friend, started being attacked by a poltergeist, had to flee her house to a host's house, and then when their farmhouse caught on fire, she was jailed for it. Now, I hear you skeptics right now saying it sounds to me like this could be the result of a mental break from the sexual assault. And I might be right there with you in that camp because most signs do point to Esther doing it herself and not realizing it, having some kind of psychotic break. But you have to remember, witnesses saw paranormal activity happen right in front of them. I'm sure that the doctor didn't turn away and then turn back and all of a sudden Esther had a pen in her hand and it said, Esther Cox, you are mine to kill above her on the wall. It seems to me the doctor was looking right at her as those letters appeared on the wall. And it's not just the doctor too. According to a lot of research I did on this one, to a lot of the different sites, multiple very credible witnesses saw several of the paranormal events happen while Esther was under close observation. So they were keeping an eye on her, thinking these exact same things that you skeptics are probably thinking. But these things would happen while they had an eye on Esther. So 
I'm not really in the Esther did it herself camp because of that. Now, eventually, attempts to communicate with the spirit through seances revealed that there were at least five different ghosts following Cox around for unknown reasons. I'm going to kind of put a red flag on that one because most seances, especially in the 1800s, were just a crock. They were just BS, and they've been proven BS by Harry Houdini and Penn and & Teller and by a lot of people across the board. But I'm, I wasn't there, so I'm just going by what the details I could find online and they say they talked to five different ghosts that were following Cox around for unknown reasons. And like the previous stories, just as quickly as it began, it stopped right after Esther's jail sentence in 1879. And I mean, everything stopped. Esther went on to marry twice and have sons from each marriage. So despite all the trauma from both this world and otherworldly, Esther managed to make a good life for herself and her family. So I'm going to call this one a win as far as these stories go. Alrighty, let's move back over to England to the Black Monk of Pontefract. The location is Pontefract, West Yorkshire, in England. And I don't know how to pronounce Pontefract, so I'm, I'm assuming I'm saying Pontefract correctly. Anyhow, the location is Pontefract, West Yorkshire, in England, at 30 East Drive on the Checkerfields Estate. Now, this was an estate on the hill and it was a seemingly normal-looking house that was inhabited by a normal-looking family. It had Jean and Joe Pritchard, their son Philip, who was 15, and their daughter Diane, who was 12. They all lived there, but in 1966, paranormal activity started up as if from nowhere. Seeing a pattern here? And again, we can go down the checklist. Everything from furniture being overturned, lights being flicked on and off, voices... Things being moved around. Something else, a little bit odd, a little bit more specific to this story itself. But gathering water pools in the middle of the room. And also, pictures being damaged and slashed. Now, they did hear the breathing sounds being heard, but they also saw something. Eventually, they had sightings of a, quote, black shadowed figure. And even though the police, local military, and a priest all witnessed paranormal activity here, the general public dismissed it as a hoax. So things kept going on, more and more and more. The neighbors and the general population around them thought these guys were all making crap up, again, even though there were witnesses to the paranormal activity. But at the end of August, during a bank holiday, things picked up even more. Now, all of the family, except for Philip, had gone to Devon for a holiday. I don't know where Devon is, but that's where they went. Now, Philip was being taken care of by his grandma, Despite the weather being very seasonably warm, Philip's grandmother felt gusts of bitterly cold air enter the room wherever she sat. And upon Philip's return to the house, the pair of them noticed what seemed to be, quote, white powder or dust falling to the ground as if it was coming from the ceiling of the room. Now, this one kind of did a little red flag for me, and I tried to look up more information, and I just couldn't find it. But you got to figure that if it was the 60s, there's a good chance it either had a popcorn ceiling or some kind of asbestos ceiling. So that one doesn't seem to be too paranormal to me, but moving on. The grandma left the house quickly to go across the street to fetch her daughter, Marie Kelly, to see if she could make sense of what the grandma and Philip were witnessing. Now, when Marie entered the property, she saw the white powder, and she also noticed a pool of water had formed on the kitchen floor. The three of them watched as numerous other pools started forming all around them. 
Now, the stories never quite say how these pools of water formed. Did they come up out of the ground? Were they drips? Did they just appear as if out of nowhere? It's kind of it's kind of unknown, really, what the deal was with these pools of water. But it is definitely weird, and I could see why it would freak some people out. While this was happening, a neighbor seemed to be noticing the commotion, and knowing that it was supposedly haunted, he entered the house, saw the pools of water, went outside, turned the water off at the mains, and informed the water department. He was kind of suspecting the pools were simply caused by a leak somewhere, and I can't blame him for thinking that. The water board, or water department, did arrive to examine the pools of water later that afternoon, but they couldn't find any leaks anywhere in or around the house. The pool stopped appearing several hours after it first started, but then later that evening, around 7 p.m., while watching television, the grandma heard Philip scream from the kitchen, Grandma, it's happening again. So it appears that, and this is where it gets kind of iffy, I think I know what happened at this point, but the way it's written is very English and very hard for me to kind of understand, but from what I can understand is, when the grandma ran into the kitchen... On the countertop, there was a mess of sugar and tea leaves, and then both the grandma and Philip witnessed uh, a tea dispenser being pressed in and out repeatedly, spraying the entire countertop with tea. I don't know exactly what a tea dispenser is, so forgive me for the lack of details on that one, but like I said, it was written very English, and I just didn't get it. And I got the gist of it. Something was spraying the countertop with tea. The grandma screamed aloud, stop it, to which a loud bang came from the hallway directly behind them. And when they opened the door to that hallway, there was nothing there. The hallway's light then came on by itself, and the cupboards and the plates inside them began to shake violently. Because they're smart people, the grandma and Philip left the house. They went over to Kelly's house, because again, she lived right by there, and Kelly ran back over to the house, and she herself witnessed not only the plates, but the cupboards still violently shaking. Around 9.30 at night, for no apparent reason that I can understand, the grandma and Philip went back to the house, and Kelly left them so they could have a good night's sleep. Yeah, good luck with that. However, as the grandma went to say good night to Philip, a chest of drawers suddenly began to sway violently in his room. And this was the straw that broke the camel's back because both of them bolted out of the house and spent the night at Kelly's house. So they finally came to their senses there. Eventually, the Pritchard family returned from their vacation and the disturbances seemed to slow down and finally stop. In fact, for a full two years, nothing happened. Then, without warning, it all started up again. And I tried to look up to find the date that initially started and the date that it started again. And unfortunately, there was not that many details. But I'm very curious to see if that was the same date or around the same time of year or the same seasons or something. Because two years later, it all started back up. The family kind of learned to live with this weird entity and all the weird things it did. And for several years, it seemed that they came to an understanding. In fact, they started to call the entity Fred. But Fred seemed to be very focused on one specific family member, and that family member was the youngest daughter, who is now 14 years old. Once again, her name was Diane. She was regularly thrown from her bed, and one occasion was even dragged up the stairs by her throat by an invisible hand. And this invisible hand left marks and bruises on her neck. 
for whatever reason, the Pritchards stayed there. And whenever company came over, Fred would make loud crashing noises all around the house and would send random objects flying through the air. So A, why the hell did they stay there? And B, who's going over to this house? And if they're witnessing this, why are they staying? I'd be like, nope, I'm out. See ya. You enjoy Fred. By the way, Fred seems to be very interested in your young daughter. Maybe I should take her and get the hell out of here with her because why is she staying in this house? Now, eventually, the family did try to exercise the property, but as with the other story, it only made the situation worse. It seemed to really piss Fred off. In fact, on one occasion, a friend of the family was said to have spread holy water throughout the entire house, and Fred responded by, quote-unquote, painting upside-down crosses on the walls. Take that one with a grain of salt as well, because I couldn't find any details on if they witnessed these crosses just suddenly appear, or if they just told everybody, oh my god, he painted a bunch of upside-down crosses. And why would a ghost need to paint upside-down crosses? It seems like if he had that much energy, he could burn it into the walls, or use blood, or do something creepy like ectoplasm or goo or something. Painting seems kind of odd, in my opinion. And I'm still not at the end of this story. The Pritchards began to actually see Fred. So he seemed to be getting stronger. Gene and Jim seemed to be the first ones to start seeing him. They both awoke one night to see a cloaked, dark figure at the bottom of their bed, watching them before it simply disappeared. Then the other family members started seeing Fred as well. But again, it seemed like Diane was Fred's main focus. And this one I could find a little bit more detail. No one that ever saw Fred saw a face. It seemed like Fred was just a dark shadow person intent on attacking Diane. Now again, depending on what site you go to, it seems like the activity kind of slowly died off with no real specific instances to write about. But just like it began out of nowhere, the disturbances stopped completely. They completely stopped seeing Fred, they stopped having weird things happen to them, and thankfully, Diane was okay. Now, there's a guy named Tom Cuniff, and he investigated the haunting and the history of the area. Now, he wrote that the black figure the family had witnessed was most likely that of a 16th century monk who had been hung on the gallows where the Pritchard's house was built. And he was hung for the rape and murder of a very young girl. He was known, according to Cuniff only, as the black monk of Pontefract. But again, it seems like Tom was the only one who could figure out a who this man was, how he kind of figured that out, I don't know, other than the fact that maybe they didn't hang that many men on these gallows, which doesn't seem logical to me at all. Or maybe he just found a large man that was being hanged for a rape and murder of a young girl and kind of put two and two together because of Diane. But anyhow, that's the case of the Black Monk of Pontefract. And finally, one more story, but while I was researching this story, and I mean almost instantly from researching this story, I debunked it completely. So this edition has one debunked story, and it's the tale of 50 Berkeley Square in London. Now again, I went into this one thinking it was real because of how many times I'd heard this story and how much comes up when you Google it, but... It's a very easy story to debunk if you just take a couple of minutes and look at just the facts. 
this is another example of an often regurgitated but not really researched story that just seems to have one site copying what another site said, they got pieces wrong from another site, and it just keeps going down the rabbit hole. In fact, I started noticing names and dates being really far off from site to site. So use this one as, if you see a site claiming this is 100% real, or if you talk to somebody and they go, oh, did you hear this really cool, crazy story about 50 Berkeley Square? Just stop your friends and say, it's not real. Stop going to the site that says it is real. And if you listen to another paranormal podcast, which, how dare you, this should be the only one you listen to. But if you listen to another paranormal podcast, I'm kidding, listen to many as you like. But if you listen to another one and they say that 50 Berkeley Square is real, there's your giant red flag to be like, maybe I shouldn't be listening to these people because they aren't doing the littlest bit of research. So let's get on to it. 50 Berkeley Square was built in the mid-18th century and again is in London, England. And here's one of the fake stories surrounding it. It's called The Nameless Thing of Berkeley Square. And it's about a creature of some sort, some kind of tentacle creature or tendril creature that lives on the second floor of 50 Berkeley Square and has killed at least two people. So we're going to travel back to the 1840s when 20-year-old Sir Robert Warboys heard about this building at a local tavern and accepted a challenge from the locals to spend the night alone there. Now, depending on which version of the story you want to hear, it was either the landlord or it was a bodyguard or it was a policeman that would hear a gunshot and then the next morning find Sir Robert Warboys dead of fright with his gun still clenched in his cold, dead hand and a bullet hole in the wall directly across from him. Or another story in either 1887 or 1943, depending on what story you read. So it's either going to be in 1887 or 1943. The same two sailors, Edward Blunden and Robert Martin, needing a place to sleep and having no money, stayed the night on the cursed second floor of this apparently open building that they just kind of wandered into and went up into the second floor. Apparently they heard that it was open and cursed. And they said, hey, open and cursed, let's do this. So they went up to the second floor, Martin fell asleep, and Blunden, who was scared and restless, couldn't fall asleep. He could hear footsteps in the corridor, which, again, it's supposed to be some kind of tentacle creature, like a Cthulhu, so whose footsteps he heard, I don't know. But the door soon opened, and as Blunden watched, a dark and shapeless form entered the room from footsteps. Uh, Blunden reached for a makeshift weapon, which is a fire poker from the fireplace. And just then, the noise awoke Martin, who saw this massive tendril strangling Blunden. Fearing for his own safety, Martin ran the hell out of the bedroom door, down the stairs, and out the building. So they must not have been great friends, where he ran into a police constable. After telling the police constable what he just saw, the men ran back upstairs, and what they found was Blunden dead on the pavement. He'd either jumped or been thrown out of the second floor window, and his body was crushed by the fall. Second floor, body crushed by the fall. Oh, come on, guys. Now, even other sites say that he tripped and died of fright as he ran from the building, or, for a more gory version, that Blunden was found dismembered in the basement or impaled on the spiked fence outside of the property. So there's like 50 different versions of what happened. It's ridiculous. 
ridiculous. And again, the dates aren't even close from site to site. Was it 1887 or was it 1943? I found all of this within about, I don't know, 15 minutes of researching. Huge, glaring errors between sites, and it gets more ridiculous from there. Almost every site, about 50 Berkeley Square, says that to this day, no one is allowed on the second floor for everyone's safety. To this day, there's, there's supposedly a shop on the first floor, but to this day, the second floor is just abandoned. In London. Uh-huh, sure. So, again, within five minutes, at work, I called, and oh my god, that floor is currently occupied and has been occupied since the building was constructed. Completely fake, 50 Berkeley Square, completely fake. But let's go back to the other stories, the non-fake stories. Did anyone notice a connection between most of these stories? If you said young girls lived in the house, ding, give yourself a prize because I don't have prizes to give you. Um, this, this again goes towards that theory about girls who enter puberty, the energy surrounding it causing paranormal activity. It's a really, really interesting theory to me. Again, I have no idea how you would kind of prove this theory, but the stories all seem to have that one little thing about a young girl right around the age of puberty having horrific paranormal activity happen to them. It's just something to think about. It's obviously not my theory, but it does seem to pop up more and more. So if I'm noticing it, other people have to be noticing it as well. Well, what did you guys think of these stories? Was it international enough for you? Uh, you got one debunked, but you got a couple that uh, can't ever be explained. A lot of these are very historical, very famous stories, not famous in the way that everyone's heard them. And again, these are the kind of stories I like. Well, as always, please tell your friends and family to listen to this podcast wherever they get their podcast needs. Go to iTunes and click like and subscribe. Leave us a great review. Those reviews are definitely helping. Thank you so much for listening. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. Paranormal Almanac.